So some of you may um, need to plug your ears right now <laughs> if you adhere to a low-carb eating plan. Okay, so here's what I want to say. I want to say this morning, I love bread. I love bread. I mean, whether it's the soft breadsticks at Olive Garden or just as good, the sweet croissants at Cheddar's. Does anybody want to just close and pray right now and go to Cheddar's? Or, or just as good, the tasty biscuits there at Cracker Barrel. Uh, but you need to know, you got to put, next time you go, ask for apple butter. You will thank me later. Uh, that's so, so good when you do that. Now, listen, don't send me emails, okay? Those of you who are on low-carb eating, eating plans, I understand it. I get it. Too many carbs aren't good for you or your waistline. And so I'm going to make this statement so clear so I don't get any emails. So here it is right here. Please be careful with your bread intake. All right, so I'm done. I said it. All right, we're, we're good. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to resist. I remember a few months ago, my wife and I uh, went out to dinner with our daughter, Mandy. We have three daughters, Megan, Mandy, Mary. Ma Mandy's the middle daughter. They're all adults. Uh, and so uh, we went out with, to dinner with our uh, daughter, Mandy, and her husband, our son-in-law, Desio, uh, at Cheddar's. Now, what you need to know about Desio is he's a personal trainer and he's a fierce advocate of low-carb eating plans. And so we're there at Cheddar's and we're sitting there. Here's me, my wife, Desio, Mandy, and here's the, wait wait the waitress and she gives us our drinks. But then you know what she brings after the drinks, right? The bread. And I'm looking at the bread, trying to concentrate on the con conversation. I'm looking at Desio, and I'm looking at the bread. And you know, I don't know how they make it, it's shiny on top. And it's calling, eat me, eat me, right? But I'm looking at Desio, and I'm thinking, what do I do here? And guess how much bread we ate that night? Zero. How sad is that, right? I mean, they're starving kids in China. And that bread just stayed there the whole, whole time. Now, why did we not eat any bread? Is it because I'm so strong? No. It's called accountability, which, by the way, is another sermon in and of itself, but I don't want to talk about that. I do want to talk to you, though, about bread today. And here's some really good news. Does anybody want some good news this morning after all the bad news that we always get? All right, so here's the good news. I know of one kind of bread that you can eat an excess of every day, and it's so good for you. Here it is, right here. The bread of life, Jesus Christ. And he's real. He's not a fairy tale, he's real. Now when I say the word eat, of course I'm speaking figuratively. The word eat in John 6, this is very important for next week's message, but the word eat in John 6 is a metaphor for believe in, trust in. And so just as eating physical bread, specifically, specifically food, is necessary for physical life, so eating, so believing in, trusting in Jesus Christ, the bread of life, is necessary for eternal life. And ladies and gentlemen, when we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, Remember what I said, repentance and faith is two sides of the same coin. And we receive that gift of eternal life. Then, then here's what we need to do. We need to continue 
right, to depend on him and look to him and lean on him. Why? So that we can continue the rest of our lives to receive the benefit of that eternal life, that gift that he has given us. The title of my message today is simply The Bread of Life. Why? Because that's the theme of John chapter 6, verses 22 all the way to 71. Now, 71's a high number. There's no way we're gonna get through all this today. And so the title of my message uh, for next weekend, Lord willing, is The Bread of Life, part two. I hope you'll be with us for both messages. Now, a little quick recap. After the Lord performed the amazing miracle, feeding 10,000 people by miraculously multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish, you guys remember what happened? The crowd was absolutely amazed and the crowd wanted to force Jesus to become king. They were sick and tired of the Roman Empire. They were sick and tired of the oppression and the taxes. They were sick and tired of being under the iron fist of Rome. And they knew this. If Jesus can perform a miracle and multiply five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 10,000 plus people, then we know he can do a miracle and he can successfully lead us in a revolt against the Roman Empire. But there was a problem. You remember this from last week. Their agenda was not Christ's agenda. And so he made the disciples get into the boat away from the, crowd, the carnal crowd and he dismissed the people to go to their homes. Next scene, you see the disciples, they're rowing to Capernaum when all of a sudden a fierce storm comes down on the Sea of Galilee. It's such a fierce storm, they are shaken to their core. And then they're frightened even more because in the middle of the night, during the storm, they look out and there is a figure walking on the water. Some people I know in this room are watching online or listening later on the podcast. You think, what a myth. You know, somebody just made that up. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, say amen. amen. Jesus Christ died and rose again, and within 25 years of his death and resurrection, they, the eyewitnesses were writing about this. 25 years, too short a time for myth or legend to take place. What we have in the New Testament is we have eyewitness accounts of true stories. Yes, there really was a figure walking on the water 2,000 years ago in the middle of the night. It's true. And they were afraid until their fears were alleviated when they heard the words, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And listen, Jesus wants to say that to you in your storm. If you'll just stop freaking out and you'll just listen for his voice. He's there, he loves you. He doesn't promise to deliver you from the storm every time, but he promises to be with you in the storm. And how many, how many of you guys know that makes all the difference in the world? Right, it really does. Some of you are not sure because you haven't experienced it yet. But listen, man, just say yes to Jesus. Turn to him in repentance and faith. He will blow your mind because he's real. He's all powerful, he's all knowing. He's everywhere at the same time. He's eternal, he's sovereign, he's real. He wants to be the center of your life. Now Matthew tells us when he gets into the boat, the wind stops. 
John tells us when he gets into the boat, all of a sudden, boom, immediately they're on the shore. What a miracle that is. If you missed last week's message called Storms, I encourage you to go back, watch it on the website, or listen to the podcast. But today, we're gonna pick it up in verse 22. If you're visiting, the reason why is because last week we stopped at verse 21. Okay, so this is what we do most of the time. We just go verse by verse through God's word. So if you're looking at John chapter six, verse 22, can you please say amen so I know you're there? Okay, here we go. And on the next day, so this is the day after the miracle, the feeding of the 10,000 plus people. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, up there around Bethsaida, saw that there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias, that's over on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's Bethsaida. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, what well boats, this boats from the Tiberias, and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right, so let's look at our map, the miracle, the feeding of the 10,000 plus people, that took place just outside of Bethsaida, and so north, east, top part of the Sea of Galilee, if you see the town of Bethsaida, please say Amen. Okay, so Jesus, the night before, after the miracle, he dismisses the crowds to go uh, home, but apparently a lot of them spent the night around Bethsaida, and now they're waking up the next morning. And they're waking up, and their stomachs are growling. And they're hungry. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. Jesus gave us a free dinner last night. Maybe he'll give us a free breakfast this morning. And so they began to... Uh, energetically look for Jesus all around the Golan Heights there uh, in the Bethsaida area. According to verse 22, they knew the Lord did not leave the night before with his disciples on the boat. According to verse 23, um, fishing boats from Tiberias. If you see Tiberias on the left side of the Sea of Galilee, please say amen. Okay, so they're fishing that night, storm comes. Apparently, those fishing boats had to dock up at Bethsaida. And then, according to verse 24, since nobody could find Jesus, they said to the guys in the fishing boats from Tiberias that were docked around Bethsaida, hey, can you guys give us a ride over to Capernaum? Because we know that's where Jesus ministers a lot. It's his headquarters. And so we wanna go find Jesus. If you see Capernaum top left, just say amen. All right, so you got your geographical uh, outlook there. It says the crowd, they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to seek Jesus, right? Um, yes. But it all depends on a person's motives for seeking Jesus. How many of you guys know that God can see into our heart, see our motives? Okay, so look at verse 25 now, verse 25. It says that when they, the crowd, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Now, Jesus could have gone into a long story. Well, you see, um, there was a storm and my disciples were in trouble and I was walking on the water and then Peter walked on the water and Peter sunk and I saved Peter and I got in the boat and the wind stopped and we were at the shore. That's how we got, he didn't, look, listen, Jesus just gets straight to the point. And in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly. In other words, time to sit up and take notice here. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Wow. Jesus, like only Jesus can, because he is the eternal son of God, looks right in their hearts with his x-ray vision, and he sees their motives. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to know that nothing has changed in 2,000 years. And so guess what? Jesus right now can see into my heart. He can see into all your hearts. He can see all of your hearts who are watching online. Why? Because he has x-ray vision. And so here, here's my point. You might as well just get real because Jesus sees the truth anyway. Just get real. Listen, you may be faking out your spouse. You may be faking out your kids. You may be faking out people at church or at work and hiding something. You need to know Jesus sees right in there. So you may as well come clean. You may as well turn to him in repentance. You may as well confess it, admit it, and quit it. And you may as well just start following Jesus. And by the way, you're never gonna be perfect. None of us are perfect this side of the grave. But you might as well just get real before the Lord. Stop the hypocrisy. Stop the fakeness. Get real. And so Jesus looks right into their hearts and he knew exactly the reason why they were looking for him. It was because they got a free dinner the night before and now they want a free breakfast. Or probably by the time they get from Bethsaida to Capernaum, it's probably lunchtime, so they want a free lunch. Now, if you're listening right now, say amen here. The crowd was not seeking Jesus because his sign of miraculously multiplying the five loaves and two fish motivated them to believe that he's a Messiah. And so now that they believe he's a Messiah, they're seeking him because now they wanna follow him. That is not what's going on here in the Bible. What's going on in the Bible? No, they were seeking him because his sign of <clears throat> multiplying the bread and the fish showed them that he could continue to feed them and perhaps lead them in a revolt against Rome. That's their motive. What can Jesus do for me? They thought the kingdom was all about using Jesus to get what they wanted in the material realm. And I'm telling you, that will preach in the Church of America today. Again, let me say it very, very clearly to you guys. The crowd thought the kingdom was all about using Jesus to get what they wanted in the material realm. Jesus has come to deliver us from Rome. Jesus has come to free us from taxes. Jesus has come uh, to give us prosperity. Jesus has come to get us a, a lot of free food. Yay, Jesus. We want to be around Jesus. And the Lord saw right through it. And he said in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you wanted another meal. You ate your fill of the loaves. 
If you missed my message two weeks ago called Which Kingdom, really encourage you to go back, watch it, listen to it on our podcast, watch it online. Um, very, very important message. It was one verse, but, he, but here's the thing. We shared very clearly as a local church what we believe about the current kingdom and what we believe about the future kingdom. And if I was thinking about being part of a local church, that's something that I would know, wanna know about that local church. Which kingdom, that was two weekends ago. So since this crowd was so passionate to find Jesus so that they could get another free meal, Jesus continues to say to them now in verse 27. Please look at verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to, what kind of life? Go ahead and say it out loud. Eternal life. Now look, look at this. Eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Can you guys please say the word give? He's linking eternal life with the word give. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. The idea here is basically, don't be so passionate. Don't be passionate and energetic about temporal things like food that perishes. Be passionate and energetic about eternal things like eternal life, which I can give you. And then he says that the Father has put his seal on the Son. His, the Father has put his seal of approval on me. Okay, so when did that happen? Well, we know initially that happened at the Lord's baptism. And so after Jesus was immersed in the Jordan, after he came up out of the water, after the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And if that is not the ultimate seal of approval, I don't know what is. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Why do we believe as born again evangelical Christians that there's only one way to heaven, Jesus Christ? Well, one reason we believe it is because he said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Another way, a reason that we believe it, in other words, when you believe something, the opposite of true is false. Okay, so either you think that what Jesus said is true or false. But if Jesus says he's the only way, but all other world religions say he's not the only way, you gotta make a decision. And one of the reasons we believe that Jesus is the only way is because he is the only, I hate using the word, but religious leader from whom God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God really did give Jesus the seal of approval, and he is the only way. What does that mean? That means all other religions and religious movements are false. Why? Because the opposite of true is false. You say, I don't like that. I'm really sorry. But it's true. And someone who loves you will tell you the truth. Someone who hates you will let you continue to live a lie and die and take your last breath in your sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Father continued to set his seal on the Son every time Jesus performed a miraculous sign. 
Every time Jesus gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the ability to speak to mute people, the ability to walk to paralyzed people, every time he raised someone from the dead. Listen, that was a miraculous sign. No one in history has ever done that. And by the way, did you hear this? That Jesus, after his death and resurrection, his eyewitnesses wrote about this stuff within 25 years of his death and resurrection. That's too short a time for myth and legend to take place. Did I already say that before? Hmm. Yeah, I just wanna make sure you got that. It's not a myth. It's not made up. It's absolutely true. And so what are we saying here? Every time Christ, the son of the living God, did another miraculous sign, it proves that God the Father's seal of approval was on him. But the crowd isn't getting it. And so they say in verse 28, it says, then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Total misunderstanding of Jesus' words. Now, how specifically did they misinterpret Jesus' words? Warren Wearsby helps us out. He said the people picked up on the word work and they misinterpreted it to mean that they had to work for their salvation. They completely missed the word what? Give. Now, please don't let your mind wander because this is when the devil likes people's minds to wander because most people in America believe that if there is a heaven, they gotta be good enough to earn it. Okay, so... Please, please, let's go over this again. In verse 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. All right, so why did Jesus say that he could give eternal life? Here's why. Because eternal life is a gift. (laughs) It is a gift given to those who believe in, put their trust in, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says now in verse 29. Again, don't let your mind wander. This is it right here. We're gonna back up to verse 28 so you can get the flow. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you, what's the word? Believe. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't get any clearer than that. I've been saying it for years and years and years. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from meritorious works. That is the true gospel. And regarding that true gospel, Wearsby went on to say this. He says, steeped in legalistic religion, they thought that they had to do something to merit eternal life. Jesus made it clear that only one work, notice work is in quotations there, only one work was necessary to believe on the Savior. All right, so here's a question. What must we do to be saved? You say, I don't understand what you're saying, Pastor. Saved from what? And I've been told that before. Because listen, the world doesn't know our language. The world's not reading the Bible. Saved, saved from what? All right, so I'll be very clear. What must we do to be saved from our sin? Why? Because the penalty of sin is death. What must we we do, do to be saved from death? What must we do to be saved from hell? Here it is. We need to believe in, trust in the risen Christ and his atoning work on the cross for us. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 
which I, I think I quote every week, and that is by design. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a, what? Gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. People say, well, where do works come in? The next verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, Christian, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I have a little note here in my Bible. We're not saved by works, but for works. If that makes sense, please say amen. And we move on to verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? So they're getting you know, a little snippy with the Lord here. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Okay, so right now we're in the first century AD. They just hit the rewind button all the way to 1500 BC, Moses and the children of Israel and the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wanderings. Just want you to see where we are time-wise in the Bible. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so the crowd is now referring to Exodus chapter 16 when God gave manna to the children of Israel. The Hebrew word manna means what is it? And that's exactly what the Israelites said that first morning when they got out of their tents and they looked at the ground and they saw what they saw and they're like, manna, (laughs) what is it? They don't know. And Moses says, this is the bread that God has given you to eat. And so every morning, I was thinking about this this week when I was, I was studying, and I, I, I know I've, I've been reading this for years and years and years, but it just hit me like, wow, God is awesome. Every morning for 40 years, <laughs> that happened. Every morning for 40 years during their wilderness wanderings, the Lord provided them bread from heaven. All right, fast forward 1,500 years, back to the first century AD, back to Capernaum. The debate with Jesus and the crowd is, starts outside of Capernaum. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you there. It ends up next week, we're gonna see uh, in the synagogue of Capernaum. And um, if there's only one synagogue in Capernaum, we'll take you right there and we'll show it to you. It's, it's the one when you look down and you see the black basalt rock, that is the synagogue in the first century AD. But anyway, um, they are there and they're like, hey, prove yourself, Jesus. If you're really the promised prophet that Moses talked about back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, then you should be able to do greater miracles than Moses did. Hey, he gave our ancestors manna in the wilderness for 40 years. You only gave us one meal in the wilderness last night, one time. Moses fed our ancestors, listen, the whole nation of them. If you go back and count, it's about 2.4 million people. Moses fed our whole nation manna. That meal last night, that was just what? A crowd of 10 or 15,000? Okay, so they're getting snippy. Let's see how Jesus responds here. It's always love and grace with Jesus. By the way, we should follow his example when someone ticks you off this week and you want to get in the flesh and bite their head off. Just think about Jesus here. Verse 32, 
Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to Israel. Is that what it says? No, who gives life to who? The world. Now what you need to know here is that five times in this chapter, in verse 33, verse 38, verse 50, verse 51, verse 58, Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven. Now I don't know about you, but when Jesus says one, one thing one time, I'm listening. He says something five times, man, we got to sit up out of respect for the Son of God. What, what is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. I came down from heaven. Now, what if tomorrow you're at lunch and lunch break and someone, one of your coworkers looks over at you and says, hey, I came down from heaven. You would be like, going to the boss privately, um, I think we got a problem here. <laughs> Jesus didn't say it once, twice, three times, or four times, he said it five times. And this is why we're emphasizing in the line of C.S. Lewis that either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And it's your choice. The ball's in your court of what you wanna believe. And so, I came down from heaven. Who did he come down for? End of verse 33, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. How many of you Gentiles are really grateful for that? Yeah, that's good news. And that's why John said in his first epistle, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the what? Whole world. The word propitiation, don't let it bother you. It simply carries the idea that by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus Christ propitiated, he satisfied, he appeased the wrath, the just wrath of God against mankind's sin. I'll come back to that in a moment, back to our text. The hungry crowd is still thinking materialistically. The hungry crowd is still thinking physically. And so right now in verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They are spiritually obtuse. They're dull. They're not getting it. But how many of you guys know in our BC days, we were all like this. We needed help to understand spiritual truths. So Jesus makes it as clear as possible. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Please notice that the phrase comes to me and believes in me are synonymous. They're synonymous. And so we have now come to the first of the seven great I am statements um, which reveal Christ's identity as the self-existent son of God. He says, I am the bread of life. I am, we'll find out later, the light of the world. 
I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now here's what I think is interesting. None of those metaphorical statements that point to the self-existent eternality of the Son of God, none of them can be found in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, or Luke doesn't contain it, which is one of the reasons why we are so grateful that the Holy Spirit led John to write a fourth gospel. But I think most of you know this, maybe, but maybe some of you are new and you haven't read the Bible. The phrase, I am, is the name that Yahweh God, way back in Exodus 3, revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush. I am. Who am I gonna tell, Moses says, the, the Israelites, what is the name of this God who's sending us or sending me uh, to deliver you from Egypt? And God's like, I am. <laughs> I am that I am. And so what we gotta understand is that that phrase, I am, points to the divine attribute known as a seity. Now, now here's, here's what I wanna really emphasize. Some people think that in order to make church palatable and relevant, you should never go deep with people. And so it's kinda like we're supposed to check our brain at the door and not deal with theological truths in the pew. I absolutely, 100% disagree with that. And I honestly think that's kind of an insult when some churches have that mindset. And so we're gonna go a little bit deeper here. If you're listening, say amen. Okay, so we're talking about the divine attribute of God called aseity. Dr. Norman Geisler defines that as aseity comes from that Latin word, meaning literally of oneself. Used of God, it denotes that he exists in and of himself. Independent of anything else, he is self-existent. He is an uncaused being. I love that. You say, why are you talking at this level about God? Here's why. Because the more I share the truth about the true God of the Bible and how big he is, the more you're gonna wanna worship him, not just on Sunday, but during the week. That's why. And the more that I share with you the truth from the Bible about how big, big God is, the smaller your problem's gonna become. And so God is independent. God is self-existent. God is an uncaused being, which reminds us of the cosmological argument for a theistic God's existence. And so, cosmological is simple. Cosmos means universe, logos means reason. And so the cosmological argument teaches us that a theistic God is the logos for the cosmos. He is the reason for the universe. In brief, it looks like this, it's so simple. Number one, everything that begins has a cause. So if you believe that, say amen. Thank you, 50% of you. All right, so the other 50%, okay, listen. How do you know for sure, pastor, that everything that begins has a cause? Here's how I know. Because something can't come from nothing. And here we are. Okay, something doesn't come from nothing. So everything that begins has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Now, we've been saying this for 2,000 years because we read the book of Genesis. But now, sort of recently, when you look at the history of the 
of the world or the history of Western civilization, sort of recently, now scientists are saying there's scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning. Okay, just read your Bible. All right, everything that begins has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a what? A cause. A cause. Now, you can't have an infinite regress of causes and effect. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. You can't have an infinite regress of that. So there's got to be a first cause. And that first cause could not have had a beginning because then it would have been an effect which demands a cause. Therefore, the first cause is the uncaused cause. Ladies and gentlemen, the first cause is the eternal, self-existent, I am the creator of the world. That's our God. And if people would just open the Bible, man, so much would, 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 so many problems would be solved. But if people would just open the Bible, who is this creator? Well, through the progressive revelation of the scriptures, we see it's the triune God. There is, please shout it out, one God. Go ahead. One God. Eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, you put that up last week. Yep, by design. You know why? Because the people who knock on your door on Saturdays reject that. They believe that Jesus is not God. They believe Jesus is Michael the archangel, the highest created being. That's the Jehovah Witnesses. You say, you're being mean and divisive. No, I'm not. I am being your pastor, teaching truth, so that you don't fall for error. That's what I'm doing here. By the way, the Mormons do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. I don't have time, that gets really strange and it'll take hours. So you guys go to gotquestions.org and type in Mormons and you can read all about it. But because he is the son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is absolutely right saying, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, seven times throughout the gospel of John. And of course, in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's the second person of the Trinity. He can say that. But there was a problem, which Jesus brings up now in the next verse. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says, he says, but I said to you, Jesus addressing the crowd that's debating him, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Isn't this crazy? Okay, so they had just eaten the night before the miraculous meal. So they saw the sign and not only that, one of the other gospels tell us in that same time frame, he healed the sick among them. So they saw the healings. They had seen the miraculous signs. They had heard the amazing sermons. But here's what they did. They made a choice. And yes, I'm using that word very purposefully right now. They made a choice to reject Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. They made that choice. 
And so, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 37, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All right, I love this verse because it affirms three things. It affirms God's sovereignty, it affirms man's responsibility, and it affirms the believer's security. This is one of those that you should memorize. John 6, 37. Think this through with me. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What is that? That's a sovereign God. And he who comes to me, by the way, the phrase comes to me is synonymous with what? Let's try it again. The phrase comes to me is synonymous with, shout it out. Yes. Give all those people gold stars. Thank you for listening, by the way. Comes to me, believes in me, trusts in me. All right, so all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's a sovereign God. And he who comes to me, that's man's responsibility, human responsibility. It's a choice. And he who comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the believer's security. And so, wow, what an amazing verse. Wow, what a verse in the middle of the night when we wake up and we're afraid about something that we can quote because we memorized it and take assurance in our amazing God. And so how in the world can God be sovereign and yet humans be free? Um, when I was in seminary, I was taking a class by Dr. Ron Rhodes, and he said this, in a lecture, he's explaining and quoting Dr. Norman Geisler's position. He said this, and yes, I know we're going deeper, but praise the Lord. He said, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter 1, 2. There is no chronological or logical priority of election and foreknowledge. You say, how can you say that? Because on the next line, you look at the attributes of God. As a simple being, the word simple doesn't mean God you know, is slow, it means that he's absolutely one. As a simple being, all of God's attributes are one with his indivisible essence. Hence, both foreknowledge and predetermination are what in God? One. There is no unfolding of thoughts in God's mind. Now, I know that throws people for a loop because we are bound by time. We are here in the space-time, matter, material universe. God exists above that, outside of that. God is not bound by time. We think sequentially. God doesn't think sequentially. There's no unfolding of thoughts in God's mind. Thus, whatever God knows, he determines. And whatever he determines, he knows. More properly, we should speak of God as knowingly determining and determinately knowing from all eternity everything that happens, including, very important here, all free acts. Okay, so that's super deep. If you want clarity on that important topic, here's the book that I recommend to you by Dr. Norman Geisler. He's with Jesus now. It's called Chosen But Free. Ladies and gentlemen, they're both taught in the Bible. So don't overteach one and exclude the other, or don't overteach this one and exclude the other. They're both in the Bible, and this is a balanced view of God's sovereignty 
and the free will of man. By the way, Dr. Geisler co-founded the seminary that I got my master's degree, uh, my master's in theology from, which is Veritas International University. I highly recommend it. He also co-founded another seminary where Frank Turek received his doctorate called Southern Evangelical Seminary. We're leaving it up for just a minute in case you at least want to just write down the title, Chosen But Free. Now, speaking of Dr. Frank Turek, he's coming back. And he's coming back in, uh, I think it's six weeks um, from today. So he will be back with us on the weekend of July 23rd and 24th. And he's teaching on the topic, if God, why evil? Now, how much more relevant can you get than that with a war in Ukraine going on? How much more relevant can you get than that than school shootings? or supermarket shootings, or maybe your own personal tragedy that's going on in your life that's shaking your faith. And by the way, what I love about Dr. Turek is that he just has open mic. You just walk up and ask the question. And so here's the thing, he's coming, he's gonna speak at all three of our gatherings, and then he's coming back on Sunday afternoon at 2.30, he's gonna do an apologetic seminar, and he's gonna dig even deeper in this topic, if God, why evil, if God, why suffering? And so uh, registration opens the first week of July on our website, and it's a great weekend to invite your friends. Last three verses, but please stick with me to the end. This gets so exciting here. Look at verse 38. He says, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven. He says it again. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's your next point. If you have been justified by faith in Christ, you will, there's no maybe, you will be glorified at the resurrection. Thank God for that. Thank God for his promises. You say, how do you know that for sure? Because I know that Jesus is a promise keeper and he said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up at the last day. Therefore, I'll say it again, I'll say it again. If you have been justified, that means declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, you will be glorified at the resurrection. We're done in John. We're gonna finish up the message in Romans chapter eight. So please turn to Romans chapter eight. As you're turning there, I just want you to know that as I'm studying, the Holy Spirit led me to use this final illustration, which we'll show you in a moment, and I get excited when that happens. You know why? Because I think, man, this really is so important, what we're doing here on the weekends. And listen, God is in it. Love that. And so Romans chapter eight, if you're looking at verse 29, Romans 8, 29, please say amen here. All right, so here we go. Maybe if you have a pen, you don't mind marking in your Bible, you can underline five words for me. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church at Rome, verse 29 of chapter eight, for those whom he, please underline, foreknew. He also, please underline, predestined. You say, I don't believe in predestination. I'm sorry, it's right there. Okay, 
predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, please underline, called. And those whom he called, he also, my favorite, please underline, justified. And those whom he justified, he also, please underline, glorified. All right, so what are we talking about here? What we're talking about here is what's known as the golden chain of salvation. And how many links are in this chain? Five. All right, so four known. Four known. We already talked about this. The great I am, the self-existent one, the one who lives in the eternal now, who is all-knowing. He knowingly determines and determinately knows from all eternity everything that happens, including all free acts, including those who put their faith in his son. Second link, predestined. It is the believer's destiny to be conformed into the image of Christ. Next link, called. The father calls the predestined by his spirit to the son through the sharing, teaching, and preaching of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Justified. When a person places their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he paid for their sins on the cross, paid in full, and rose from the dead the third day. When that person turns to Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin, you've heard me say that before, they receive Jesus as the Savior and Lord of their life. They are justified. What does that mean? That means that God clothes them with the righteousness of Christ. Hey, if we try to stand before God in the tattered, worn robe of our own self-righteousness, we're not gonna be accepted by God. But here's the good news, that when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, he clothes you with his righteousness. Therefore, when you stand before God, you are just as white, clean as Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're so good and I'm so good? No, because Christ and his love and his grace has wrapped you up in his righteousness. That's why. So you're accepted by God. You are declared righteous. And if you've been justified, praise God, one day you are going to rise from the grave with an immortal body fit for a new heaven and a new earth. Because God's promises are unbreakable, so that chain is unbreakable. And all God's people said, amen. amen.